Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think Australia needs a bit of a reality check and, and needs to then start at the basics. How do we rebrand? How do we change the world's view of us? And how do we make it safe and make it a place where people can dream to establish themselves, dream to live and dream to build a life that is a safe and secure one? You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. I'm Dr. Will Stoltz from the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm delighted to be joined today by one of my ANU colleagues, Dr. Liz Allen, who's a demographer and senior lecturer at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Thanks for joining me, Liz. Thanks for having me. So, Liz, I was really eager to speak to you because uh, we've had in recent times the release of um, Australia's 2022 population statement, um, which has brought to bear a range of really insightful um, projections and statistics about where Australia's population is heading. Um, and there's a different, a whole lot of different ways I want to dive into this. But perhaps we can start our conversation by contextualising for the audience um, what this population statement is and, and, and what it's typically used for. Yeah, population it kind of conjures another P word and, and that's one of uh, politicians and poli- politics and um, and the like and another P word in, in the form of panic. And so whenever we talk about population, we have this kind of, um, we tend to see a, a political lens placed over it and also a management of, of some kind of form of panic whether or not that might actually be deliberately conjured by uh, the politics of the day or other, um, who knows. But but population is one of those topics that is quite a a divisive matter and Mm. but quite central to everything that we do because population is the foundation upon which uh, the economy rests upon uh, which our health and and our well being rests as well. So it's an, it's pretty fundamental and an important aspect of our lives that we should, in the very least, understand a snapshot of who we are and perhaps where we're going or, or the possibilities of the future. I like to to say that demography is a bit like a choose your own adventure. And, and to that end, when it comes to choosing our future adventure, um, understanding the, the kind of structures, the, the age distribution, um, the dynamics of population change, um, is essential to understanding the possibilities into the future. Where are we, how are we tracking in the past? 
leads us to where we are now in the present and then gives us these potential opportunities for the future. And so we've seen very different kind of approaches to understanding population dynamics and population change and um, and trends and so on. Um, the intergenerational reports are probably what most mm. people think about when when we talk about these sorts of government reports um, on population. Under um, uh, the the Centre for Population, which sits with Treasury, which was kind of a relatively new um, initiative uh, that was was implemented under um, the former uh, Conservative government um, or previous iteration of. Mm. So basically what they do is it's it's their job to report on population statistics to to inform decision makers both within government but also to put a more academic or, or more of a kind of narrative on the on the population data published by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So it gives a little bit more um, insight and perhaps investigation than 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 otherwise uh, would be provided with the basics that the ABS publishes, but they draw quite heavily on it. And so, since the creation of this centre, as I said, which sits within Treasury, mm. um, re- reports each year. And and here's the thing: you, you said it's the the 2022. Report, yeah, and that's yeah. it. It is. So it feels almost like kind of a retrospective rather than a prospective kind of endeavour. So I think there's more to be done um, in this matter, but but it's a good thing. These reports are really important, I think, from, from an informed and evidence-based approach to talking about population, to talking about population needs. And as I said, population is is the foundation upon which um, policies and 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 practice and decision making and um, strategic thinking all rests. Mm, if we mm. don't know what's happening with our population, then we tend to make ill informed or um, uh, are more likely to make ill informed decisions about what needs to be done. Yeah, it's it's really how we get a sense of what's what's realistic for Australia's future, isn't it? Because um, yeah. you know every country's population and, and demographic change is obviously essential to their future. But Australia, being a migrant country, a country that mm. relies on migration for our economic growth, strikes me yep. that we we need to get a really clear sense of what's possible when it comes to our demographic change to in order to calibrate our aspirations for what Australia's future is. Um, mm. There's one figure that really leapt out at me in this population statement that I'd love to get your views on is that I think it was projecting uh, a skilled was it skilled migration intake of um, 235,000 people a year each year for the next 20 years, which is a pretty big spike in um, migration to Australia based on previous numbers. Um I got the impression that these were potentially optimistic forecasting of where Australia's skilled migration is going to go. Obviously, we desperately need more skilled migrants in Australia. Um, I suppose just to dive into that, I guess first question, um, 
you know, do, where do you, what do you think of that particular figure? And mm. um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how those sorts of forecasts are typically created. Yeah, so so I think the figure that you're referring to is the net overseas migration figure. Net, and so uh, yeah, I was talking sorry. previously about the population dynamics. So how does a population change? So a population can change um, due to a, a number but but not a lot of, of different changes in terms of drivers. So on the one hand, we have internal movements, internal migration, and the other one is is overseas migration. The other one, of course, is natural increase, which is the balance of births and deaths within the local population. Migration and, and specifically net overseas migration is a pretty contentious issue in Australia and it has been for a long while. Um, I do think the figures in in the report that suggests a return very quickly to the the the, the net overseas migration uh, rates of before the pandemic or, or getting close to to that before before COVID. I do think that those figures are optimistic and that's because I, there's a lot outside the government's control. The government can issue visas, yeah, sure, right? Mm. Um, but the, the issue is whether or not people can get here physically on a plane, the logistics of getting here, the costs of getting here, and then, of course, whether or not we can retain People. So that net overseas migration is the difference between people leaving and people coming. And permanent migration is kind of outside that. Permanent migration is, is the, the figure that is set um, as a ceiling uh, by um, uh, a different department entirely, one in control of immigration. Yeah. Um, that um, so each year that that program of, of migration is is set um, and within that um, breakdowns of skilled migration and so on um, is set as well. The government, um, present government has already announced that it will increase that ceiling of um, permanent immigration um, and so so they that I think has sent uh, quite a lot of shockwaves um, to, to individuals, um, particularly people concerned about Australia's growth rate. Right. And so, so Australia's growth rate is strongly tied to net overseas immigration um, because the largest chunk of um, Australia's growth is due to net overseas migration. So that figure... It does suggest a bit of a um, a bounce back, certainly from the the deficit that we saw mm, mm. Um, uh, at the uh, during the during the pandemic, def- in a way that we'd never seen the likes of it in in contemporary history. I think I think it was um, I wrote it down eighty eight thousand uh, people. Uh, had, had departed. Net, or yeah, net, net it was huge, and there's no surprise. Yeah, we had yeah. we had the prime minister of the day tell people to go, um, you know, in in um, in air uh, speech marks, go home when Australia was home, 
And so mm. we kind of at the same mm. time sent a signal to the world that Australia wasn't terribly welcoming. And I think that we need to also overcome that Um that branding or reputational damage that we experienced during COVID. So we didn't have supports for people who were here to to help the country to to fill workforce needs and to build a life. It, we didn't have assistance. People were queuing in, in lines to get food and, mm. and so on mm. for themselves and their families. That has, has uh, not um, gone unnoticed across the world. So I think Australia has a lot to come back to in terms of rebuilding the brand and the, the issues around logistics, which are definitely outside the, the control of government. Visas, that's another thing. Now, I've said I'm, I think they're optimistic figures, but we've had the Treasurer and we've had another very knowledgeable um, uh, expert um, who knows who knows migration and the migration system quite well a former a former um, official within uh, immigration itself say mm. that actually we might exceed the expectations on net overseas migration which are within that within right. that report I think the figure was even suggested as something around 300,000 in the next in, in the next period or in the current period. I don't, I'm not sure whether we will get to that. So again, you can tell that that embedded within these population figures is a whole heap of uncertainty, because mm. what how we calculate these projections um, is is based on a whole suite of assumptions. We're making assumptions about what we think will be the future, based on past and current trends that we can see in the data. Mm. And, and obviously, and, and at the moment, we exist in a geopolitical environment that is quite it unpredictable. Is. And these these figures, it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that the, the forecasting of these long-term population numbers doesn't really take into account and, and maybe doesn't have a way of taking into account the, the prospect of geopolitical disruptions, whether that's displacement of people due to climate change no. or war in Indo-Pacific, yeah. that, that those factors are kind of just not able to be incorporated into these sorts of forecasts? No, they're quite external. Um, and unless you deliberately set in within those assumptions around, and the assumptions are around those drivers of population change, the dynamics, um, movement, people movement, whether internally or or across uh, international borders, and of course births and deaths, and so we're making a whole heap of assumptions in relation to all of these drivers. And if, and as you say, there could be something in the future, like a pandemic, that sees um, uh, our life expectancy decline, for example. Now, we've seen that. That wasn't projected in the past that that would happen. Um, um, and so, we we would be unprepared for that that kind of embedded um, uh, element of change within that population mm. uh, uh, foresight, if you like, and so yes, we we don't we don't have a way that we typically capture these uncertainties. There are uh, kind of um, 
new ways that we're seeing um, um, calculations of population projections and so on that involve um, a statistical um, uh, kind of range of error or assumption and, and the like. Um, but we typically don't see that in in the mainstream. But they, the, I mean, I guess the good news is these projections do tend they create a, a range of projections mm. and they take the midpoint. Mm. So there's a lot that the future holds that we don't know about. For example, just recently, the um, the Chinese government announced that um, if students wanted to have their overseas international uh, studies recognised, they would have to go to the country where um, those uh, where that education was being facilitated to finish or, or um, uh, undertake their studies. And I think that caught the Australian government off guard. Mm. I don't think I think they saw that it was coming, but they didn't quite know when. And so there are things like that. Mm. Happened much sooner, I suspect, than anticipated. And so now we've got now we've got people scrambling to to get on flights, to be able to afford flights. There will be some that won't be able to. What happens to them? What then happens to the relationship between um, what is a very large relationship in terms of sector in the higher education sector between the two countries? This will be a really interesting geopolitical, um, um, uh, I guess, kind of scene to watch play out and see that how that impacts the population bottom line. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Um, so I want to get to what Australia, the Australian government can be doing to actually um, shape the behaviour of international migrants. You know, you've mentioned the example there of, of Chinese students. Um, but obviously Australia needs a, a very diverse range of highly skilled migrants um, to be coming in, uh, not only just to sustain general economic growth, but there's some really big national projects that Australia is embarking upon, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the AUKUS Pact uh, and a whole lot of, you know, transformations of our digital economy for which we need very um, highly skilled and highly sought after migrants. And we're obviously competing with other countries, you know, we're competing, we're competing with our friends and allies for these people. We are. Um, so what are, what are the policy incentives or policy responses that you think that the Australian government should be undertaking to actually induce 
um, induce people to come to Australia because it strikes me that perhaps we are maybe complacent about our positive reputation. You know, we've had decades of of people wanting to come here. We think we are, you know, we're a beautiful country, we're a um, safe, mm. stable, um, free society, and we think that that's that's got a, a certain gravity to it, mm. um, which maybe isn't uh, as sure a thing for attracting people as it as it used to be. So, um, yeah, what 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 are your kind of reflections on that? Yeah, I think we Australia has an overinflated view of itself, um, particularly in the world. Um, we are a country at the bottom of the globe, just about, and and so, and we are physically distant from the rest of the world, um, and so. I think we've we've got to this point where we value ourselves and we think we're a pretty hot country in terms of being wonderful and so on. But when we look at um, people who are intending to migrate or move from their current country, there are countries that top the list that aren't us. So um, Canada, the US... Uh, the UK, these are countries that are favoured typically ahead of Australia. And even during the kind of Trump years and the kind of uncertainty and the fears around what was happening in the US, they were still beating us by a fair margin in terms of um, migrant intentions. And so I think we we do have this overinflated notion of ourself um, and our political and our, um, I don't know, our, our perhaps our economic pull in the world because we are competing um, uh, for a whole range of things on a global scale for workers because we are not the only country in the world who has an aging population whereby we're now confronted with more exits from the workforce and not enough entrance into the workforce by way of kind of aging into the workforce um, within the local population, which means that immigration has become a vital component of ensuring Australia's economic well-being because our local population doesn't meet the needs of the workforce. And what that means is in the short kind of short-term, medium and, and longer-term outlook is that over time Australia will be having to make do with having less money but need to do more with it, mm, mm. particularly with an ageing population and the stresses that that brings. So living standards as a result go backwards. And and we can see uh, internationally, so, for example, Japan, what happens when a, world, a, a, a country is closed off to migration. So Australia is quite lucky in that we are a heavily... Um, um, migrant nation where people mm. do come, um, whether or not we're getting the right skill and the worker mix is, I think, going to be more challenging in the future, particularly with, with what's happened during COVID. Um, and I think we fail to 
to really factor in that when people look to migrate, they use a whole number of factors to kind of consider moving and, and, and so on. But part of the kind of relationship and this kind of agreement, if you like, of migrating is that people come to Australia in, and it's a massive risk for them as individuals and for fa- mm. as families mm. because they take a punt, if you like, on Australia that Australia will give back to them because initially when people migrate to the country, they don't get um, they don't qualify for benefits and so on, yet we take uh, income tax from them. Yeah. So they're directly supporting the country and we're not necessarily reciprocating that relationship. And I think that we we tend to be quite foul as as a country um, in in our attitudes towards immigration, particularly our kind of long-term kind of baseline of, of kind of protectionism and and, mm. and likewise that makes it very difficult to have conversations about our population and, and about what's needed um, based on the evidence without kind of going into areas of potential discrimination and racism. So I think Australia needs a bit of a reality check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and needs to then kind of start at the basics. How do we rebrand? How do we change the world's view of us? Um, and how do we make it safe and make it a place where people can dream to establish themselves, dream to live and dream to build a life that is a safe and secure one? And I think that's a pretty hard thing to do right now, given the current global situation of, 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 mm. of, you know, the reality is that, that, um, um, that half the world's population lives in countries, um, or, or areas with below replacement fertility rates. Wow. So they're just like us, right? That's the reality. And I think we need to get over ourselves a little bit in that regard to be able to compete, um, on a global scale. Well, on this point of a reality check, there was, as part of the Treasury um, modelling we've discussed, there was a really compelling figure that I think um, it was saying that uh, employer-sponsored visa holders add approximately $550,000 of value to the Australian economy over the course of their career, which compared with a a native-born Australian who adds $85,000 worth of economic mm. value to the Australian economy over the course of their career. So there's a staggering uh, <laughs> there's a staggering economic benefit to um, skilled migrants and particularly those that are sponsored by, um, uh, by businesses. In terms of the, the policy responses, I mean, that, those statistics, that, that, those figures there really sharpen, sharpen the focus. I mean, in terms of some policy responses, something that I think about is – um, one of the initiatives that the Australian government took to trigger kind of the biggest influx of migration into, in Australia's history was in the post-war period, the introduction of assisted migration schemes mm. where the Australian government would actually sponsor. Yes. Um, although it was obviously very selective based on which countries people come from, but mm. they would sponsor people's migration costs. You know, this is how we get the, the was it, 10-pound poms and, and, yes. and those sorts of people. I mean, are these... Policy options that we actually need to start looking at again with a fresh light? 
It's really interesting. I think we, we have a lot to learn from the post-war rebuilt. I definitely think that post-COVID, I know we're not post yet, but in a kind of post-COVID world, we need to kind of take that as a reset and reconsider and perhaps enable greater innovation in the way that we approach um, uh, matters of, say, for example, immigration, but also other aspects of population change. Um, but if we go back to post-World War II, there was a clear direction from government that the population needed to grow and it needed to grow by around, I think it was 2%, and half of that needed to come from immigration and half of that needed to come from local population growth, so the births essentially. And it was it was very clear that Australia had to do this. This is the political messaging that was given mm. because a fear that Australia couldn't defend itself. So population was seen as, as, as a means of strength by way of military force. So it needed to, there were very clear kind of messaging and I would say almost kind of propaganda around the time in relation to that. And so there, but in, in addition to that, we also had an international need that Australia was increasingly being pressured um, by, you know, international forces, um, not not military forces, but mm, um, mm. Um, kind of social uh, forces to to accept displaced persons. And, and so Australia kind of embarked on this nation building, um, somewhat forced, but also I think somewhat embedded in fear, I think. Mm. Um, what do we learn from that? I think we learn that that innovation is an important element of matters of population discussion. How do, do we want to set a target? No, I'm not one of setting targets because we typically see um, that then we have elements of coercion mm. and um, an independent kind of choice, uh, particularly when it comes to birth rates and women, yeah. um, the, these matters of choice are removed and we see kind of all sorts of um, unpredictable and unintended consequences of harm. So I think we do need to kind of reconsider this kind of what this kind of existential question of what do we want to be as a as a country? Mm. And this and kind of forging a blue a blueprint of a path forward. What are the these kind of ad, uh, possible opportunities? You know these kind of choose your own adventure paths. Think of Australia as a kind of a T section at a juncture, a, a watershed. You all of those words of, of our history and think about what are the options that are set before us? And the population um, uh, report gives us these options. What are the the kind of drivers that we can and can't tinker with or pull? What are the best ways to do those things and so on for a desired outcome? I think Australia needs to consider the desired outcome is one of well-being. Mm. Living standards are maintained. Well-being is, is maintained if not um, um, improved upon and that young people can feel greater certainty in Australia. 
I think we've got to this point where young people, particularly women, are shouldering the concerns of our future by way of climate change, Mm. housing insecurity, job insecurity, the costs of living and, oh, my God, you want me to have a child kind of situation where we need to kind of um, take pause and kind of look at these options and use our demographic thinking as a choose-your-own-adventure for what we want to be, factoring what we know is a very uncertain geopolitical situation as well. And I, and I suppose there's there's a duality to that. It's about what Australia's aspirations for itself are but then also what our yes. what our humanitarian obligations are in a more uncertain world. Yes. Um, you know, we've obviously seen the displacement of people That's arising right. out of, um, you know, the invasion uh, invasion of Ukraine. And, and, yes. and, and obviously I would expect that many Ukrainians expect to go home one day. Yes. Um, but that might not be possible. And, and, you know, there'll be similar, sadly, there'll probably be similar displacements of people arising close to our region, whether it be, um, Myanmar or even elsewhere in Southeast Asia arising out of um, natural disasters and those sorts of things. Yes. So I, I guess I want to get to the question then of um, of a kind of migration or population strategy. You've mentioned that um, there's multiple different parts of government that kind of have equities when it comes yes. to this policy area, whether it be um, the Department of Home Affairs, which is responsible for migration, uh, whether it be Treasury, which obviously has responsibilities when it comes to macroeconomic planning, um, DFAT, which has uh, humanitarian responsibilities. Is it the case that these, you know, this kind of dispersal of the policy, is it being uh, joined up with an overarching strategy? No. no, not at all. I would, I would, I would say. Um, I, 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 I like to refer to it as a kind of disjointed puzzle, a whole heap of puzzle pieces that are kind of thrashed out and thrown across a table, and they're they, they're, as I said, disjointed. They they don't even lie alongside each other. They're siloed, and so we have all of these kind of disjointed decision decisions being made and policies being created and practice kind of um, being carried out that don't necessarily have this kind of synergy between them or even talking between them to between them that's required for a cohesive approach to such matters. Now as a demographer, I um, given that we kind of we started this conversation by saying that population was the basis of everything. Uh, and when I say that, I mean it's the basis of health, it's the basis of education, it's the basis of it, of uh, the workforce, it's the basis of aged care and retirement and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's everything, right? Yet we don't have a cohesive approach to connecting mm. these very interconnected, very intercon- um, interdependent relationships. And so we need to get to a point where we have some kind of oversight mechanism where we are reconnecting these these disconnected pieces of the puzzle together so that we can see what's happening, we can see how these things can better work together. Because we've spent quite a significant amount of time here talking about immigration, right? There are other 
parts of this population puzzle mm. from a local perspective that need to be considered as well. Mm. So, for example, mm. fertility rates and, and you know, countries not very far from Australia, countries that have um, – very interconnected dependencies with Australia are confronting what some are calling a human catastrophe um, or a catastrophe of of humanity when it comes to falling population as a result of low fertility. So, I mean, is... um, Government policy does need to get do better here. Whether or not that's practical and what that would look like in a practical sense is a really tricky one because we see to, we seem to have in Australia very short sighted, um, political life cycles, if you like, particularly around policies where government of the day wants to show that they can deliver. And so policies are focused on what can be delivered in a short amount of time, sometimes three to six months. Mm, so mm. We're no, we've not seen long-term investments in, say, for example, infrastructure, vital infrastructure, roads, transportation, housing infrastructure, education infrastructure, and we're paying the price for it now, right, mm. So, in t- by way of pressure. And so we... And that's a result of this kind of short-termism uh, embedded within politics, but also this lack of kind of strategy when it comes to this kind of blueprint of Australia's future. And I suppose um, you've, you've alluded to the experience of other countries in our region, um, and, I, and I suppose we can kind of look to um, some, some of those as case studies of uh, what happens when you get <laughs> population planning uh, re- done really badly, uh, yes. so to speak. I mean, um, uh, Rana Mitter in the UK has written ex- extensively about uh, the kind of China's demographic challenges, um, mm. you know, whether it be the long-term implications of the One China policy, which has obviously since been reduced, but there's, mm. a, lot, there's a long tail to that. Um, yes. uh, and then there's also, um, you know, Japan has recently been been flagging um, the impact of you know its low birth rates and 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 Japan is also um, not as uh, uh, doesn't have as robust a migration kind of intake as as we yes. and other countries do. I mean, what? So I guess speaking tangibly, like what are the effects in societies when you get these things wrong? I mean, like you know we've spoken <laughs> about declining living standards, but in practice, yes. like what does that actually look like? What what are the negative implications? So, I, you know, I think jokingly, but, but also seriously, this is kind of an, an assessment of when population policy goes wrong. You know, mm. we've learned, we, we had our own kind of natural experiment of population during COVID, right? Closed borders, um, where a lot of people would, were predicting, oh my gosh, house prices, we're going to, oh, they're going to become more affordable. They didn't. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were all of these kind of, um, um, assertions and hypothesis uh, hypotheses being made around what would happen as a result we proved in our population experiment that migrants don't um, uh, inflate the house market um, migrants don't uh, steal uh, jobs of locals and they don't mm. um, suppress wages right so and we just we saw how crucial they were right? And this word migrant, by the way, I'm using it 
because mm. in the absence mm. of any better term. Yeah. But it's problematic in its own right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and what can we learn from the the population um policies gone wrong from overseas? Well, we've got to this point where coercion was adopted via kind of a Western, so-called Western notion of what fertility and family should look like and imposed in China. And it ended in a way that we now have such, uh, you know, I think it is, it is a crisis of humanity, what what was done to people, what was done to families and the an enduring impact of that. We now have a socially ingrained notion of what a proper family should look like. And in many cases, that doesn't include kids, Mm. right? Mm. And so that is a major disruption to the entire social network of who cares for the elderly, say, for example, in a country like China, Um, who who is going to be the next generation of of the country um, uh, and so on. And what about the workforce? Now, we could all sit here and decide, okay, do you know what? This isn't a catastrophe. This isn't a problem because it was individual choice. It was mm. people People were making these choices, these decisions. That's not the case. If we look to data in Australia and we look to the, the, the comments that have been made, particularly by young people and young women in Japan and China, and as Australia, as I said, based on survey data in Australia, young people want to have children. Mm, mm. Not everyone, and that's okay. But for those that do want to have children, they say that it's too difficult. And we know that life gets in the way. It's too difficult to bear the thought of taking time out of work. What about climate change? Am I going to deliver my children or my child to an uncertain mm. inferno of hell? You know, what What about um, uh, the kind of childcare, negotiating, workplace? Who's going to do the drop-offs? What if it's just me? Yeah. You know, this kind of – and it's young people that are making these decisions because they realise that generations past have failed to act, particularly in Australia, mm. to ensure a more certain future. And so this uncertainty is now so deeply embedded in the psyche of young people, and we see this again with the statistics around mental health, particularly of young people during COVID, that we now have a catastrophe of uncertainty. Hmm. We need now in countries like Australia, in countries like Japan and China, to actually enable people to feel hopeful about the future, that it isn't a dire inferno of hell, Hmm. but there is security and hope because ultimately that's the future of us. Hmm. It's our humanity, it's our people. Now, the other component that we haven't really talked about is if we start looking to so-called pronatalist policies, so for example in Australia, that's a long time, that's an entire generation before we see that flow into the workforce. So we still require immigration. So what that means is a country like Australia could potentially change in its diversity quite rapidly. 
And I think that these are uncomfortable conversations for some to have because we haven't reckoned with Australia's black history. So we get to this point now where we're having very contentious conversations about diversity in Australia and what that means for the future when it comes to migration and all these sorts of things. But I kind of come back to this issue, if I'm not being clear enough on this matter, is most of our terrorist attacks and our and um, and terrorism and 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 our terrorists mm. that we produce in this country are homegrown. They are not from external forces, and I think that that. Um, we need to include that in any kind of concern that we have around immigration and changing population. Well, thank you, Liz, for such an expansive conversation. I think you've given us, um, you know, a remarkable uh, insight into what's possible if we pay attention to um, the resources that are out there in terms of understanding our population and potentially pushing for maybe a population strategy in which we can chart the course to deal with these wicked problems yes um but i really appreciate you taking the time to to share of your expertise uh with our audience um and i hope people will pay uh, very close attention to to the work and the research that you and your colleagues are doing here at the anu thank you and i think that that you know it's we started with some p words and it's nice to end with the p word of possibilities what are the possibilities and another P word, potential. I love it. For us in Australia. And I think with it, with that in mind, we we confront the future. And I think that's the best way to to look forward to to the future and, and consider what might be possible. I agree. Thank you, Liz. Thanks so much. Thank you. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.